Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, July 17th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrecht with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eron. This week, we've got a humdinger for you. I'm talking about an old fish, a slow fish. Send this to your favorite grandpa, because we're talking about the Greenland shark. Awesome. And I'm very pleased to introduce our guest. He's from Canada. We've got Eric St. Marie. He's a PhD student in the Hussey Lab at the University of Windsor, and he's studying the behavior and physiology of Greenland sharks in the Canadian Arctic. So big welcome to you, and we're very happy to talk with you. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so Greenland sharks, as Guy kind of alluded to, they've got a lot of superlatives. So they're the largest Arctic fish. They're one of the slowest swimming sharks. But the one that really stands out to me is that this shark is the longest living vertebrate. They live a crazy long time. And I'm wondering what life is like for Greenland sharks and if there's something about where or how they live that helps them live for so long and how long do they live? Yeah, so the estimates that came out in 2016 for the largest of the sharks that they sampled, they estimated about 400 year lifespan. Crazy. Plus or minus 120 years. Okay. So (laughs) kind of got a big error bars, but still an old fish. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, even at the lower end of those error bars, it's still a very old fish. And so part of why we think they might be living that long is, well, one, they're very large bodied and generally the larger animals out there tend to have longer lifespans. I mean, it takes time to get to a large body size. Often larger animals also have slower metabolisms and kind of life history and metabolism have kind of been linked together. So that old saying, live fast, die young, is Mm -hmm. kind of true and live slow, live for a while. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of seems to be the case, especially for an animal like the Greenland shark, but other large animals as well. Another thing that helps them is they're cold blooded. Uh, If you're cold blooded and you're living up in the Arctic, Well, that means you're going to have a very, very slow metabolism and so slow that they probably don't need to eat very much. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it also, again, contributes probably to their longevity. Slow and cold. That's interesting. Yeah. On the maximum of those error bars, that goes back to what the fish (laughs) would have been in like born early 1500s. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So if at the high end of that, that oh air gosh. margin, you're at, I think like 512 years for that five meter long female that they sampled in that paper. And so it's pretty crazy to think of being an animal like that, that it could have been around and then thinking of what we were doing as humans mm-hmm. back then when this shark was already swimming in the oceans. And I think that's one of the things that really drew me in at first to, to working with Greenland sharks. Before airplanes, before steam engines, all that stuff. That is crazy. Columbus is transversing the Atlantic Ocean at the time. It's wild. Yeah. I got to ask, though, we, we did recently have someone on to talk about uh, Mariana snailfish, which is another deep sea fish. And he was explaining how even down there, you do get this seasonality where you can like look at otoliths and determine the age. But sharks don't really have these calcified structures. So how are they estimating the age of these Greenland sharks? Yeah, so they did it using the lens from inside the Greenland shark's eye. Huh. And basically the center of those eye lenses are formed when they're kind of born. And so if you look at the isotopic signature of that eye lens, you can kind of get an idea for when some animals are born and kind of look at that across the curve to see how old all the different individuals are. And so 
basically in the 1950s and 60s, there was nuclear bomb testing in the ocean. And so that led to a spike in radioactive carbon isotopes. And those then get kind of worked their way through the food web. And so based on what the mothers and stuff were eating at the time when they were giving birth to that shark, you'll see that sharks born after that time have this spike in radioactive carbon in the islands. And so based on that and the sizes of different individuals and stuff, you can kind of create a calibration curve to estimate the age of Greenland sharks. Awesome. Yeah. So they having to dispatch the sharks to get the eyes? Yeah. So unfortunately, like most of what we know about Greenland sharks has been learned until recently, which is very little, has come from usually deceased animals which are caught in bycatch and fisheries and things like that. So there's been very little directed study of Greenland sharks until recently, and most of it has been on these individuals caught in, in fishing gear and stuff like that. Nice. Go ahead, Guy. I'm guessing that this fish is probably pretty late maturing and doesn't have a ton of babies. Is that true? Yeah. In the same paper that estimated their age, they also estimated their age at maturity at about 150 years. Oh wow. my gosh. That's old. 150 yeah, years so takes... old before having... Wow. That's yeah, crazy. at least for the females. So, so the males mature at a much smaller body size and so likely oh mature at a younger age. But for a female to be sexually mature, she's got to be at just over four meters in length. And mm-hmm. so to get to that size, when you have such a slow growth rate, such a slow metabolism takes quite a long time. What's gestation time yeah. like? Oh my gosh, You're like an old maid. What, are you going to say like a decade? Uh, yeah, so there was an estimate based purely on like model data that was between, I think, something like eight to 18 years. What? A gestation what? period. <laughs> which is crazy. And again, keep in mind that's based on like made up data. Oh it's not actually gosh. an observed value. In a more recent paper in 2020 on the reproductive biology of Greenland sharks, they estimated kind of lower, but still like multiple years at least. Gosh. And again, we just don't know because there's only been, I think, a couple instances where an actually pregnant female has been Hot. And so we have so little information. Gosh. And actually, there's still debate on how many pups they actually give birth to. And so some of the estimates until recently have been often about like in the kind of one to 10 range. But recently, the more Gosh. recent paper came out, it's kind of saying that actually it's probably a lot higher than that. And to me, that makes sense given how slow they are to mature and how long they've been exploited for and that the fact that we're still catching kind of large numbers of Greenland sharks would indicate that if they takes that long to actually reproduce then they've got to be reproducing in in numbers at least and so that more recent estimate is in the kind of up to a couple hundred up per time or over the lifespan per gestation wow ah, huh. interesting fascinating so Again, still a lot of uncertainty, but a lot of this is not based on direct observations, but again, based on kind of the best data we have, models and looking at related species, that kind of thing. My mind is like blown. That's amazing. In terms of how this fish looks, um, can you compare how it looks, you know, maybe in relationship to species that people might be more familiar with, like a great white shark or something like that? Do look very interesting, and I'm curious if you're able to describe size, base, any of that kind of stuff. I'm lucky I've gone to work with great white sharks as well, so I can describe quite well the differences between them, both in terms of their appearance, but also in terms of the way they feel. So one of the big things about sharks is that their skin is made up of these things called dermal denticles, which are kind of like tooth-like structures that cover the body of the shark. 
and it kind of feels often a little bit like sandpaper. But on a great white shark, it's much smoother than on a Greenland shark, which has larger dermal denticles. And so it's even rougher than you would normally feel it when touching another shark species. Now, they move really slowly, too, and they have kind of often mucus and stuff on their skin as well, uh, algae and other things like that. So they do kind of look a bit kind of zombie-like when you see them. Like, I knew they had the denticles on them, but looking at them, they look like they're kind of more like, I don't know squishy or something yeah and their bellies and stuff we do give them belly rubs uh, not really but when we're taking our measurements and stuff we kind of feel the body and they are a lot also kind of softer overall in terms mm-hmm. of body density okay. it feels like a little more gelatinous let's say than than a great white shark which is very yeah. firm rigid yeah. muscular and so yeah they're very kind of rugged looking they look a little more friendly to me. They look like a friend. Yeah, they're a little more less intimidating, perhaps, yeah. to look at. Yeah. A little bit funny. And how big do they get? They can get usually to about like five meters. It's like the max size that we'll typically see Greenland sharks at. But there has been reliable reports up to about six and a half meters. And then some less reliable ones up to seven and a half meters. Wow, so a little over 20 feet potentially for folks. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. Converting, yeah, okay. It's big. They do get really big and people don't often think of that. They think of the big sharks. They think of great white sharks and, and whale sharks and stuff. And actually a lot of Greenland sharks are in the similar size range to great okay. white sharks, just living a very different lifestyle. What are the other sister species to kind of put this type of shark in context, I guess? Yeah. So in the Somniosis genus, there's also, so Microcephalus, which is the Greenland shark, Pacificus, which is the Pacific sleeper shark and Antarcticus, which is the southern sleeper shark. Although recently a paper on the genetics of these sleeper sharks found that there's not really support for a differentiation between Pacific sleeper sharks and southern sleeper shark. And so they might not actually be three separate species. Okay. And you said microcephalus? Greenland sharks, yeah. So is that so small, tiny, small head or tiny head? Small head. Yeah. Yeah, the sleepy okay. tiny head, if you yeah. convert it uh, <laughs> into English. <laughs> That's awesome. So I got to continue this comparison with the lamnid sharks, the mackerel sharks, our great whites and whatnot. I feel like, you know, we're coming off of Shark Week and as a society, I feel that we're instinctually sort of think about shark feeding as this high flying acrobatic event, but maybe bring us back down to earth or back down to the bottom of the ocean and tell us what's the feeding ecology of this Greenland shark like? I like that. Yeah. Nice work. (laughs) Thanks. That, that sounded poetic, <laughs> didn't it? That was good. <laughs> <laughs> the Greenland sharks, they eat a lot of different things in general. So you'll often see people mentioning that, oh, they found reindeer or polar bear inside the stomach of a Greenland shark. We know that they're probably scavenging a lot of their meals and especially those ones. But <laughs> typical meals for a Greenland shark are usually fish and marine mammal. In the smaller sharks, we'll often see a lot of invertebrates as well, like squid, and how they actually feed and find those those animals. That's where a lot of the mystery lies when it comes to Greenland shark ecology. We know they're scavenging, at least sometimes. We witness the scavenging. We often see hammerheads with bait on it, and the sharks will come and feed on that bait, but we know they are scavenging. We don't know how often and in what context they might actually also be actively hunting. And so that's a lot of what my PhD research is focused on right now. Because they're so slow, they likely not kind of use the same strategies of the shark, like a, a great white shark, which can kind of use a more pursuit style. 
they still rely on ambush hunting as well, white sharks, but they have the ability to birth swim at really high speeds as well to help them pursue prey. Greenland sharks, on the other hand, are not going to be able to outswim their warm-blooded mammal prey up in the Arctic. And so we're still yeah. trying to figure out how they might be able to hunt live animals in those contexts. Do you know what proportion is like fish versus marine mammals like seals? It does depend on like where the shark is. Okay. I think they're likely opportunistic. And so what's available to them is going to dictate often what they feed on. There's one larger scale study that recently found that in adult sharks, about 20% was marine mammal and the vast majority was fish. Okay. And what kind of fish? Yeah. So again, that depends on region. Up where we are in the Canadian Arctic, um, Greenland halibut makes up kind of the largest proportion of their fish in their diet. But out in Europe, so Iceland, Norway, Svalbard, and those areas, we'll find some other fish like redfish and Atlantic cod, and typically like benthic and benthopelagic species, so kind of those deeper water fish. Awesome. Thank you. I was looking at their jaws. They look (laughs) different than most shark jaws that come to mind. What is that related to how they're feeding? Yeah, so they don't have the same kind of like big, scary teeth that, again, you would see on a great white shark. Their teeth are kind of more adapted to just not letting go. And then when we watch them scavenge and stuff, they'll often kind of have this thawing back and forth kind of movement to kind of help them consume some of the flesh. So the reason we think they might sometimes be actively hunting marine mammals is that there have been observations of beluga up in the Arctic with circular bite marks out of the side that oh and there's no other predators up there that could produce that kind of bite mark Inuit hunters up there have harvested seals where the seal had a bite mark on it before it was harvested and so oh they're just snacking zoom the yeah. evidence that they are kind of able <laughs> to sometimes at least get their teeth on a live uh, animal huh that's got to be embarrassing if you're a beluga whale and you get tracked down by <laughs> Well, what's the max speed on these guys? One study that's kind of out there now had that their average swimming speeds were about 0.34 meters per second, I think was the estimate, which is slower than a human's walking speed. That would be embarrassing then for a beluga. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. And then even the maximum speed, I think in that study, it, it was about 0.75 meters per second, which is still kind okay. of slower than some other species kind of cruising speeds even, so not that fast. Since then, we've used kind of similar tags, and in some of our sharks, we found that they are able to, at least in some cases, go faster than that. But that's kind of expected given like our sample sizes are getting bigger now, and so we're more likely to get those kind of extreme events. Yeah. We talked with Vicky Sharky Vasquez last year about the logistics involved with studying goblin sharks. And I'm wondering just a little bit more about the work that you're doing and how many sharks you've like seen or handled and all that kind of stuff. Let's see. I've been working with them for about five years. I would say probably close to a, a hundred animals oh, that wow. I've personally been kind of involved with tagging. That's more than I expected. That's cool. Yeah. So one of the big reasons we don't know very much about Greenland sharks is because they are just so difficult and expensive to actually study. Where we're studying them and stuff, they're up in the Arctic, typically in really deep waters. There's a lot less infrastructure set up to accommodate this kind of research. We kind of have only a narrow window where there's ice-free conditions that we can go fish. Getting there can be expensive. Even just the commercial flights to get near where we want to be are much more expensive than commercial flights to basically anywhere else in the world. And then once you are there, it can be difficult conditions again with weather, 
the con- condition that sea, and then working with a deep water species where you kind of just have to set your lines and hope something bites on. Hmm. And then once you get the animal, you're like, oh, this is a really big animal. It takes several people to to manage one shark in order to be able to get our tags on, take our samples and release the animal. I'm kind of curious about the tags themselves and like how big are they? How do they attach? How long do they last? I think fisheries and studying fish and sharks is really neat because, yeah, there's only a certain amount of different ways you can do it. Yeah, I gave some of the negatives of working with sharks in remote areas, sample sizes and stuff like that. But there are a few positives. And one of them is that their large body size means that you can often put tags that can record kind of more detailed data than you could on a smaller species, especially when you're working on the behavior of a species. You really don't want to kind of interfere with their behavior because of your tag. But given how large their body size is, you can kind of fit more technology into a a tag package for a Greenland shark than you could, let's say, for a salmon or something much smaller. There's different types of tags depending on the studies we're conducting. So we have them focus more on their movements. So acoustic tag, unfortunately, satellite tags can't transmit underwater and Greenland sharks rarely go to the surface. And so while we use satellite tags on Greenland sharks, we can't really get their location regularly. We often just have the tagging location and then maybe a year later that satellite tag pops off and we'll get their location at that point. And then obviously whatever the tag recorded during that year, usually depth, temperature and that kind of stuff. And so we'll have a package. I was going to show you with my hands how big, but that probably won't work for an audio format. Give us a similarly sized object, like a potato. or Yeah, I would say (laughs) uh, two potatoes. (laughs) <laughs> depend i'm thinking i'm like there's all sorts of different types of potatoes now i'm getting overwhelmed by the a, diversity of potatoes a baseball a softball a yam let's say like a, a, <laughs> i would say about a yam a large yam or a medium-sized yam sorry sorry i don't know my yams well enough but you you'll get the general idea of okay. of, of that and where on their body we tag them behind their head and so that way as they're body moves when they're swimming, we can record things like their tail beats and stuff like that. The tags themselves, the packages will always have an accelerometer. So recording their movement in three dimensions, as well as temperature, depth. And then we have some new tags now that record really cool stuff. And that's what I'm really excited to look at for my PhD. And that's we have accelerometers with an integrated sonar. And so we can actually see to some extent, what's in front of the shark as it's swimming and then see how it responds behaviorally to those stimuluses. And so oh. already just from looking at some of that data, we see potential predation events and we watch the shark kind of increase its activity levels leading up to that interaction and possibly feeding as well. What kind of questions are you trying to answer with those accelerometer tags? I'm guessing that people aren't giving you lots of grant money just to figure out how fast they go. Yeah, it's figuring out how fast they go is important in that it gives us a better idea of how they might be getting their food. And that's really the question that has ecological relevance and potentially relevant to helping protect the species, though they're currently getting caught in a lot of commercial fisheries up north, mostly for Greenland halibut and northern prawn. And so if we understand how they're finding and consuming their food, it's easier to kind of design fishing protocols that might help avoid capturing the sharks. They're really big animals and they're very heavy and it can be hard to get them off of your gear without damaging your gear and without hurting the animal. 
So anything that can reduce the amount of sharks that get caught at all is going to be helpful for everyone going forward. Awesome. Are you able to get that data live or do you have to wait for the tag to pop off and transmit back to you? Yeah, good question. So our satellite tags, when they pop off, they'll be somewhere in the ocean and they'll transmit the data to a satellite and then we can just log in online and download that data. Our accelerometer tags are recording usually at about 100 hertz, so 100 data points per second. And that's 100 times X, Y, Z, acceleration, depth, temperature, and then the sonar file or some of our other tags have hydrophones to listen. So for marine mammals, we can hear what's around them. Those files are so large that they could not be transmitted by the tags. And so we actually have to recover the tag. And so in that same tag package, there is also a VHF radio beacon and a satellite tag so that we can find the tag floating in the ocean after it popped off. And because we have to retrieve it, we only do deployments usually of maximum about a week, just because if the shark swims too far off and we can't recover the tag, one, it's a very expensive tag package, two, and we've lost the data and put the shark through the tagging process for nothing at the end of the day. It's crazy. You can find a yam-shaped object like out in the ocean. Yeah. And so is it just like a predetermined, like you set it for a week and then it just comes Mm -hmm. off? Yeah, so they, it's a pop-off archival tag is what we call them. And so depending what timer we put on it, when we deploy it, we'll get our first satellite location transmitted from it within an hour or so of when it pops off from the animal. So pretty accurate in terms of when it pops off. Yeah. How does it pop off? It's like a little timer that plugs into a special zip tie. And there's like a, almost like a little firecracker with a wire that connects to the timer. And so we'll put that on the top of the tag that's so not against the animal. And then basically it's just enough of an explosion to break the zip tie. And then the tag itself will float up to the surface. Okay. They're spray painted orange so that they show up. And then with our HS antenna, we can kind of get the rest direction. And once you're in like that 50 meter kind of radius of your tag, then everyone's got binoculars <laughs> and it's looking and who wants to be the one who finds the needle in the haystack. <laughs> that's so cool. We do put in usually a 10 year acoustic tag. So it's a small tag that will stay with the shark and that gives us kind of their rough movements. And so if we do reach out to an animal, we can likely tell it. And we put a little marker tag externally as well, which will tell us a number. Okay. I want to get into the Icelandic national dish. I cannot pronounce it, so I'm going to lean in to not being able to pronounce it well. Kester Hakarl. Can you tell us about this? Have you tried it? Yeah. What, what is it? Um, so I haven't tried it, but I do know of it. Anyone I know who works with Greenland sharks has at least heard of this dish. It's fermented Greenland shark. And part of the reason they ferment it is because the flesh of Greenland sharks is actually toxic. And you wouldn't want to consume oh. that without pre-treating it in some way. And that's because it's got high levels of things like TMAO, which is an osmolite that potentially helps with the very cold temperatures they live in. Okay. I always wonder how people kind of figure out, yeah, like this is toxic. Now we're going to try it again, but we're going to try like something else with it, like fermenting. And I'm always curious how those kind of recipes develop. It's cool. I hear that it tastes like, you know, it tastes like bleach, tastes like ammonia. You got to plug your nose when you're eating it for the first time or and there's like yeah. just super strong aftertaste. It's like taking a shot of liquor. Ooh. Yeah. And again, it comes down to like they've got such high levels of urea in their muscle tissues and stuff like that. It doesn't sound pleasant to me, but I don't want to yuck somebody's yum if that's what they like. (laughs) Is anybody collecting data from the sharks being harvested? 
Because it's, yeah, I mean, if there is kind of an active harvest in some places, is that a place where folks are getting data or any desire to do that? Yeah. So I, it is a bit surprising that there's not more coming out of Iceland, but they're just so commonly caught in other deep sea mm-hmm. fisheries in the Arctic that a lot of the work we see on Greenland sharks comes out of Greenland and Svalbard. There's been a bunch of studies and stuff like that. Yeah. And so most of like what we know about their diet, for example, has been from those kinds of studies where the sharks are caught in fishing gear and then dissected so we can see what's in their stomachs and things like that. Thankfully, Mm -hmm. now we're developing new tools where you can kind of study diet without kind of sampling the stomach. Yeah. Yeah. So the things like stable isotopes, fecal DNA, those and behavior, right? Those are ways we can kind of assess the biology and behavior of Greenland sharks without um, lethal sampling. And again, that's why I'm super excited to be working on their behavior with these new tags that can kind of give us new insights into their decorative lives. Yeah, that's cool. Fecal DNA, that's a yeah area for study for folks out there interested. That's cool. Is there any sense of kind of what the population status is? Is it just one big population or do we know anything about that kind of structure either? I think Iceland is the only place that has still a directed fishery tour for Greenland sharks. But historically, there's been a lot more throughout kind of northern European countries. And that was often for their livers, which are large and very fatty. And so they could use it to get the oil. And that's kind of where the only estimates we have of how many sharks were kind of fished during those centuries was based on export of shark liver oil. So we could see that they're exporting X amount of barrels per year. And then we know approximately how much oil there is in one adult Greenland shark's liver. And so you could kind of estimate how many sharks were caught. And the numbers are actually like really big in the tens of thousands per year. And so, again, given how many Greenland sharks we still catch today, although the numbers are thought to be declining, the fact that they're still there in numbers is kind of a testament to just how many there must have been in the ocean to be able to sustain hundreds of years of fishing like that. In terms of population numbers, again, it's one of those things, like most things about the Greenland shark, that we just don't know. We have some preliminary estimates for certain specific regions. One of my colleagues, Dr. Brenda Vine, she came out with those first estimates of abundance for Greenland sharks. And in some inlets, you could have up to, I think the highest estimate from that paper was about 16 sharks per square kilometer. But over the quite large global range, we don't really have an idea for what their population is, nor do we have a good idea of the connectivity between populations. So we know there's Greenland sharks in Europe and we know there's Greenland sharks in the Canadian Arctic. But again, the studies of their behavior and movement have only just kind of started. And so we still don't have a good graph for at least how often there's a kind of crossover between them. I think a very recent paper on their genetic structure found that there's kind of some differences between those populations, but that there is also mixing and so some connectivity. And actually okay. just recently, we, we published a paper on a new parasite for Greenland sharks. And that parasite was a close genetic match to another one sampled from a different species of shark near Scotland. And so that kind of indicates that potentially that Greenland shark picked up its parasite elsewhere or that those ecosystems are more connected perhaps than we previously knew. That's cool. Yeah, most Greenland sharks are being parasitized by the copepods that actually attach to their corneas and it's thought to really hinder their vision and damage their eyes. That being said, they are probably using their nose more than they're using their eyes. And they live often at great depths where light is not widely available. And so even though most Greenland sharks 
seem to have this parasite. It doesn't seem to really hinder their existence. Although it is pretty gross to think about a little invertebrate hanging off of your eyeball. And we do sample them in the field. It is satisfying to pluck one off of a Greenland shark's <laughs> eye. The sensation yeah. is a lot like, you know, when you pull a grape off, there's like resistance and then that little like uh, release. It's yeah. a bit like that, um, but a lot squishier. And the shark's like, ah, yeah. that's gross and cool. I like all this tangentially related research to get at this real enigmatic species. Like you're looking at the parasites instead of the fish itself, looking at the oil sales instead mm -hmm. of the fish itself. That's really neat. Do you recall the first instance when you became interested in these sharks and like, where do you want to go with this species or these similar sharks? Yeah. So I've always been interested in sharks, but in terms of my research as a biologist, I haven't always been focused on sharks, although I've mostly been focused in the Arctic. So I, I love Arctic and marine environments. And so I started with Arctic insects and then I kind of moved into seabirds. And then I went to a talk, a grad seminar at McGill when I was doing my undergrad and there was a speaker, Dr. Bailey McMedians, and she came in and gave a talk about Greenland sharks. And that kind of got me really excited about the species. And then when I finished my undergrad, I asked my honors thesis supervisor to recommend people to kind of reach out to for a master's project. And then he gave me a list of people. One of them was a Greenland shark researcher. And so there you go. I went down that path and uh, I haven't looked back there since. <laughs> awesome. It's always good when people come over from birds and join the fish side. Yeah. Although I've, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I've questioned going back to birds to some extent. Oh, no. uh, not because I find them necessarily more interesting than sharks and things like that. It's just the the data scientist in me it has a hard time with a species like a Greenland shark where sample sizes are just so hard mm -hmm. to get to get Big anything numbers. basically. Yeah. Yeah. And when you look at like a study on invertebrates, let's say like in the insect world or something, if you have like a sample size that's in the hundreds, right? They're like, Oh, are you do your stats work out properly? Like how's this? Meanwhile, in the shark world, everyone cheers when you get an N of five. And so <laughs> there's only so much you can do statistically when you don't have large data sets. And so that's been kind of a challenge for that side of me. And seabirds are nice because although you can't get the same sample sizes as many invertebrate studies, you do still get kind of reasonable sizes and can ask, therefore, more complicated questions about their behavior and movements and stuff like that. So that's one of the reasons I briefly considered a PhD in seabirds instead of Greenland sharks. But I looked at an old photo I had of a Greenland shark and I just, those eyes, I couldn't say no to. <laughs> awesome. Anything you'd like to say to folks about sharks in general or just, you know, we're coming out of shark week, anything like that? I want people to, to know that there are more than just five species of sharks that you'll see on TV during <laughs> shark week. So you often see the bull sharks, the white sharks, the tiger sharks, and hammerheads because oh. they're cool to look at but there are just so so many other types of sharks with such diverse lifestyles and ecologies that are just so fascinating to learn about i'm already so excited when i tell people i work with greenland sharks and they actually just know what a greenland shark is mm -hmm. that brings me a lot of happiness and i feel the same about other shark species as well the little known species that don't get the attention that the big five do yeah <laughs> Thank you so much. This was super interesting. I had no idea that, you know, some of the things you said about age at maturity. That's amazing. Yeah. So appreciate it. Thank yeah. You. Thank you so much for having me.
Okay. Get out there and enjoy all the fish and yeah, appreciate the sharks and get to know the Greenland shark. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.